The scripture passage today is from Mark 4, 30 through 41. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them, and they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And when they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Be still, or peace and be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Good morning. Good to be with you all. What a beautiful morning, isn't it? My goodness, we're so used to this warmth, it's, it's almost too cold out here for some of you. We're getting, we're getting to be uh, weather snobs here. But um, <clears throat> what a gorgeous morning that we have to worship the Lord. Let's pray together, and now we'll get to work. Lord, thank you for another just gorgeous morning. Your sun shining upon us. Lord, it's a sign of your grace, a sign of your mercy that you that you are with us, you intend to do us good. We thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that in Christ we would see that you are always for us, never against us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord God, that uh, we would have eyes to see this morning the beauty of Christ and also the beauty of the gospel. We can approach the living God and we can do so, Lord God, without condemnation. Lord, we are sinners. We confess our sin to you this morning. We recognize, Lord God, that you are in our hearts not always number one. We doubt you. We fear. We accuse you, Lord God, of being someone who you're not. So I pray, God, that you would you would forgive us of our sin and help us to see where we sin. And I pray, Lord, that we would tremble in your presence, that we would tremble before your holy name. Lord, if there's any of us here who have grown too complacent in our faith, who have grown too complacent with you, Lord, that they don't fear you as they ought. I pray that you would land upon them. I pray that you would land upon all of us, Lord God, a fresh fear of the Holy God. And I pray that this wouldn't be a fear that squelches us, Lord God, but a fear that builds confidence deep within us, Lord, because the fear of the Lord brings confidence. The fear of the Lord brings the confidence that you are uh, an almighty God, 
but you are an almighty God who sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be for us and not against us, to pay for all of our sins on the cross. So Lord, help us by your spirit, as Phil prayed. We need your spirit to flow through us, to empower us to see the beauty of Christ, to see a God who is worthy to be trembled before, but a God also that we can confidently approach in Christ. So help us, we pray. Be with us as we open up this text. It's a familiar passage for all of us, Lord. I pray that there would be fresh insight and that you would call your church, Lord, to greater faith, greater faith in you, and that we would find blessing, Lord God, in trusting and obeying you. So go before us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me tell you a story. Back when I was in college, many moons ago, I had a job. And um, I worked at a place called RPS, which stands for Roadway Packaging System. Is that right? I'm a service or whatever. Like UPS. It's FedEx ground now. And I loaded trailers. I loaded trailers with lots of boxes. In fact, in my time there, I calculated I loaded almost a million packages. That seems, that seems like an accomplishment um, anytime you, you load a, a million of something. But uh, packages would be diverted down these chutes, and then my job was to basically stack them in a way that was most efficient, and I had to also check every zip code. So at the time, I had hundreds of zip codes throughout the state of Minnesota and some of South Dakota and some Wisconsin memorized because I had to make sure that every package that came down my chute was supposed to be loaded in there. So it was a high stress job, it really was, because it was all about speed, but then also you had to you know, make sure every single package was in there correctly and you couldn't just jam packages in, you had to stack them just right so that they wouldn't get destroyed. So it was high stress. It was based on speed, based on efficiency, based on safety, because the faster you worked, the less or more likely it was that you would get hurt and that would cost the company money. So high stress. Anyway, my, it, was, it was even more stressful for our uh, bosses. Our bosses um, or the managers of the teams and the sides, they were under a lot of stress too. And all that to say, at one point, one of my managers or the manager for my side recognized or understood that I was a Christian. And his response was kind of interesting. His retort to that was that Christianity is a crutch. That was his kind of initial feedback or his retort. Christianity is a crutch or religion is a crutch. And the irony here, this was kind of ironic in many ways because he said this so as to imply that I don't need a crutch. You know, you, on the other hand, do, but I don't need a crutch. And the irony was that I knew he was also a pretty heavy drinker. So he implied, I don't need a crutch, except that, you know, I have many crutches, alcohol being one of those crutches. And I could have pointed that out to him, um, that, uh, you know, what he's saying, actually, this idea that he doesn't actually need a crutch is, um, you know, kind of hypocritical. Or I could have pointed out that the Bible doesn't actually present to us a God who is a crutch. The Bible does not present that vision of God to us. Christianity does not offer a God who is a crutch to, his, to, to their people. And I think this episode proves that, and I'm going to kind of flesh that out a little bit. 
This episode does bring us face to face with the living God who is almighty, yes, but he is one who is as unsettling as he is powerful. And I'd like to say something brief about the three parables that come before this episode, this story of the disciples in the boat. You notice that there's a sequence of three parables. And the reason why I had James read the last of that three parable is because I want to make some connection. I don't think Mark makes a hard and fast connection between these two, but here's one connection. Um, These three parables are the encouragement of Jesus to hear and to know who he is. And it is the encouragement that while the kingdom of God starts off slowly, like a mustard seed, it isn't that impressive at the beginning, and it isn't that significant. It will eventually blossom into the biggest tree that the birds of the air can make their nests in. And I'm going to say a little bit more about this next week, this this idea that this tree is growing in the birds of the air, there's a lot actually of biblical imagery there going on, and it's important for us to understand. I think it comes into play a little bit more next week. But we can say um, that, uh, that, uh, that, the, that, that the kingdom of God is small, insignificant, and understanding it and understanding the God of Christianity is kind of something that we progressively do. Um, And I want to point out that the disciples had their own struggles in understanding who Christ was. They were with him one-on-one. They were with him in close quarters. And yet, if you look at this this whole uh, episode, it kind of ends on this unique question. It says this in verse 41, they were filled with great fear and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? Do you see that? Do you see that the disciples were even even struggling with their understanding of Christ? Their understanding started off pretty slow. They were having a hard time. And notice that this story climaxes on this question of Jesus' identity. Who is this? That's the question that this this story kind of climaxes on. And the most important question that you can ask and you can answer for yourself um, is this question, who is this? And the reason why this is the most important question that you could ask and answer is because it carries eternal consequence. If you've never trembled in the presence of Jesus, and if you've never wondered really from the bottom of your heart, who is this? I want to, I don't want to say this with absolute certainty, but I want to alert you that this might be an indication that you don't know Jesus. You don't know the God or the Jesus of the Bible. The way that he is revealed in this passage, those who truly encounter Christ hit a place of fear, of trembling, and they ask themselves, who is this? You cannot put Jesus into a nice little box. We have him over here. He's got a nice bow on top. We take him out when we need him. They've come to the place where they realize, I thought I knew this guy. I do not. Who is this? And that's why that's the most important question that anybody, not just all of you, but anybody could ask and answer. 
And again, I'd reiterate this. If you've never really gotten to that point, if you've never really encountered Christ like this, I would ask you to question whether or not you know this Jesus. Because you may not. I don't want to say with certainty that you do not. I would, say, I would suggest you might not if you've never encountered this Savior in this way. And I would say that you don't ask this question just once in your faith journey. You, I would say that you have to at least ask this question once, but I think that this is an ongoing question. Maybe not every week, maybe not every month. But at some point, as you progress in faith, as you journey in your life, God will bring circumstances and situations to you. And if you're wrestling with him, if you are grappling with who Jesus is, you will come to a place where you put your hand over your mouth and realize, I thought I knew. I thought I had them all figured out. And you know what? I don't. That is a place of trembling. That is a place of humility. That is a place of awe before Christ. So I would recommend to us that you don't just ask this question, who is this? Just one time. I think this is something that marks our faith journey. This is something that shows I am wrestling with Jesus. I am trying to understand who God really is and all of his glory. That's something that we will never totally put in a box with a nice bow on and figure out, oh, here's God in my life. Here it is right here. We're always wrestling with that. So brothers and sisters, take that for what it's worth. I think this question perhaps marks a necessary part of your growth in your faith. Now, as we turn our attention to the rest of the sermon, I want to suggest this. The same word translated great is uh, three times in this passage. Great. Um, the Greek word is me megas. There's mega. There's mega or great storm. There was a mega storm. There was a great storm. And there was a mega or there was great calm. And then the third one was that there was mega fear. There is great fear of the disciples. And if you look at this passage from 35 to 41, those three things are repeated, that same word. And I'm going to add a fourth point in there. That when you put all these three things together, it spells out a mega or a great savior. So we have a great storm. We have a great calm. We have great fear. And we have a great savior. So let's structure this message that way. And then I will make some points of each of them. Number one, there was a great storm. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Verse 37. Now, after a long day of ministry, it says they took Jesus just as he was, which I think the way to read that is that he was preaching all of this stuff, and he was doing this in the boat. So how about that? Preaching from a boat. And they decide to shoot across the Sea of Galilee. Okay, let's go to the other side. Our work is done here. So the disciples, they get out their smartphones and they check their weather app. Looks good. They fire up the 25 horsepower, probably in Evinrude. 
and they began making their way across the lake. Some of you fishermen like that one. Um, the rest of you are like, huh? Who's, who's that? Anyway, not too long ago, archaeologists discovered that it, it, they discovered an intact boat that was sunken kind of in the silt. It was discovered off to the shore in a particularly dry year. They discovered this boat, and they used this carbon-14 dating, um, and the boat was determined to be from this period. So that tells us that the boat was about 27 feet long. Uh, it was about uh, 8 feet wide, and it was about uh, 4 feet deep. So from the ground to about here, that's about 4 feet or so. And 8 feet is probably from that hedging to that hedging. Uh, it's maybe more like 12 feet. I'm a pastor. I'm not a mathematician. I'm just trying to get you an idea of how big this boat was. It had 15 passenger capacity. So it wasn't, it wasn't an Alumacraft canoe or anything like that. But it wasn't a yacht either. All right. So it was big enough to be on the sea. Not a boat that would strike security and comfort for you. So that was the idea with the boat. And the Ga uh, Galilee was a dangerous sea. It's another important detail that you should probably understand. It was a dangerous sea. It was sunken about 600 feet below sea level, and it had mountain ridges on the west side. And what that means essentially is that winds could clash, and they could create really harsh storms totally spont spontaneously. So with no previous warning, you could go from sunny to squall very quickly. It could be like this, let's go out for a day on the sea, and next thing you know, boom, storm clouds would roll in and winds would pick up and you are in a world of trouble. So it was dangerous going out there. And the disciples thought that they were going to die at this storm that arose. Now I could understand, you know, I could understand, I suppose, if a modern family was out there and they thought they were going to die. I know if we just use my family as an example, I'm sure we would all think that we were going to die. I mean, yesterday it took one of my daughters 14 hours to pack for a three-day camping trip. And I'm sure that if, uh, if I was in that boat, I would my life would probably be on the line. You didn't tell me there was going to be a storm. I didn't pack for this, and I, I don't have the right shoes now to face the storm. So I, my life would certainly be in jeopardy. But these disciples, if you remember, at least four of them, at least four of them were fishermen. And they would have been used to these kinds of conditions. So when this storm actually arose, it would probably was more severe than the ones that they had been used to because they really thought that they were going to die. They probably weren't exaggerating. This is something that they were used to. They believed that they would die, um, so probably... A pretty big storm. It was a great storm, as the Bible tells us. And number two, we looked at there was a great storm. Let's look at there was a great calm. Okay, so let's transition into that. Verse 38 and 39. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, in the ancient world, this is important to understand, the sea was considered an uncontrollable force and a symbol of unstoppable destruction. 
The sea was full of fury, and it was an ungovernable, inexorable power that only God could control. So when Jesus actually stands up and talks to the wind and talks to the waves, I think the conclusion should have been pretty straightforward. It should have been, at least, that he is God. Only God could talk to the wind, and only God could talk to the waves, and that they would actually obey him. So I think this is the right conclusion. I don't know if they exactly came to this conclusion at this moment. And then notice that there was immediate stillness as well. Normally, I mean normally, like I've been in this situation many times before, but normally, you know, when I've seen people calm the wind and calm the waves um, or calm the wind, the wind dies, but the sea is still going to be rocking for some time. But you notice there was stillness the sea became like glass immediately. So not only did Jesus stop the wind, he actually stopped the waves from moving. Only God could do something like this. And this wind, or I'm sorry, the sea became as tranquil and as peaceful as his soul was, as he was sleeping just moments before. And the disciples, they mistook Jesus' stillness for aloofness. They, took, they, mist, they had his, his stillness mistaken for aloofness. They thought, look at this. They said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are perishing? Now their question is really an accusation, isn't it? You guys can see this. Their question is really an accusation. When they ask him, don't you care? They're actually really saying, you don't care. You don't care. You're over there sleeping. And we're dying. You don't care. And I'll tell you how timely this passage was for me. If I can share a little bit about that. Um, you know, oftentimes, I mean, sometimes you read the Bible and it doesn't seem to directly apply to your life. I don't know if you've ever been there. You read something in Scripture. But I can't tell you how, how pressing and how timely this was for my heart how much God directed me and, and, and confronted me in my own life and in my own heart when I sat down to read this passage and study this this week for this sermon prep. And when I think about our need for a location as a church, this is something we can all relate to. We're out on this front lawn for a reason, you know. right? We don't have a place exactly that is our own. And I look at that, and as beautiful and as lovely as this has been, as I, I've loved meeting out here, we all know that this can't last forever. And when I think about this pressing need that we have for a building, for a place to meet, for a GCF to be established, for us to land somewhere, I look at that and I, th I see the waves crashing into my boat. And maybe you think that too. Maybe you can feel and see there's waves crashing into our boat. And I look over and Jesus is sound asleep. And I wonder, I'm I'll be really honest, I sometimes I'm tempted to wonder, do you care, God? Are you going to listen? It's easy for me to be tempted at least to conclude God doesn't care. He's not hearing. He's sleeping on the cushion in the stern of the boat. And there's waves crashing in, and we're about to go under. And I'm sure each of you have some kind of storm in your life. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure of it. 
And I appreciate the way you guys have been open and honest with us. And if not right this moment, probably not too far in the past or probably not too distant into the future, there will be waves crashing into your board. There, there's circumstances on the outside of you that you cannot control. I like what Phil said about tribulation. There are always circumstances out there, are there not, where you cannot control them and you want to and you don't like it and I don't know what to do about it. I'm powerless, totally powerless. And Jesus is asleep. He's restful and peaceful. And the temptation in your life, I would submit to you, and I know it is in my life, I will be that honest and I'll admit that. My temptation is when I'm hard-pressed and when it goes on for some time, I'm tempted to think, God, don't you care? And I would suggest to you that's a sign of weak faith. That's a sign of lack of faith. And it's a call to me and it's a call to all of us to grow in our faith. Now we can go wake up the Savior. The, the disciples did this at least right. They at least woke him up and said, Jesus, um, you know, but maybe, maybe it wasn't appropriate for them to accuse him. You don't care. Perhaps it would have been better if they would have said, uh, you know, Jesus, you know, we've seen you do some pretty amazing things. You think you can whip up something here? Help us out maybe? There are times where you will go to Christ, you will go to God, and you will say, I'm baffled, I don't know what to do, can you please help? Please, God, we call on you to help. And that is appropriate, and that is good. But we should never accuse God. Strong faith does never, it never accuses God of, you don't care. God does care. And you know what? There's greater faith to be had in your life. There's greater faith to be had in my life. And there's greater faith to be had in our collective church's life. Do you see that? I hope that we can all see this is the boat that we're all in. This is the big fishing boat that we're in right now. We're in this together. How will God provide for us? And he will. Do you believe that? He will. He will do something for us. And our call right now is to exercise faith, to grow in faith. He is calling us upward to believe in Jesus. God is always calling us upward. He's always calling us to greater levels of trust, to greater levels of dependence upon him, to greater self-denial and self-dying to what I think should happen. This is the growth of faith in Christ. And through it all, Jesus not only proves that he, doesn't, that he does care, but he demonstrates that he has the power to do something about it. You see, we don't just serve a God who does care. We serve a God who cares, and he has all the power and all the resource to do something about it. And that's a good situation to be in. So may we not doubt. May you take your accusation against God that he doesn't care, may, may this be a rebuke to you. Because it was a rebuke to me. And may it be a call for you upward to grow in your faith, to grow in deeper trust of Christ. Okay, so there was great calm. There was great calm. And there was great fear. The third point, verse 40 and 41. He said to them, 
Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So going back to my open, opening point, the Bible doesn't present us with a Savior who acts as a crutch. And this is why. Maybe you guys are already seeing what I'm suggesting here. Because we wouldn't create a crutch that is actually more terrifying than the fear that we're trying to assuage. Do you realize that? Do you realize that the resolution here, after there was the great storm and then there was great calm, you would expect what? Great relief. No, but that's not what we see. We see great fear. They're actually more scared now. They were more comfortable facing their death than they were facing Jesus in the boat. They're stuck with the Savior now, and they're completely undressed. They're sinners in the presence of the Almighty God. Who would create that kind of a God as a crutch? You don't create a crutch that is more scary than the thing that you're trying to escape. It makes no sense. Christianity will have none of that. Christianity will say, no, we can't put, that, we can't put Christianity in that box. You see, the disciples, um, you would expect that they would have great relief at this point. But that's not what we see. And we don't see them, you know, what, what do we not see them doing? We don't see them updating their Instagram account. Hey, gee, that, was, that was pretty cool. Can, can we get a picture with you so I can put this on my Instagram account? And we also, we, we don't see them... <laughs> We don't see them. You know, Jesus, you know, my wife has kind of been nagging me a little bit lately. Do you, think, do you think maybe you could come over to my place and maybe just talk to her a little bit like you kind of just did? Or maybe you have some annoying neighbors, some rowdy neighbors. You mind swinging by sometime this week and kind of doing your shtick and then keeping the, uh, the neighbors under control, perhaps? That's not what we see them do. We see them actually totally scared, totally terrified, even more so than they were before. They were more comfortable, like I said, with facing physical death than they were facing the living Savior, who now was there with them in the boat. I thought of Matthew 10, 29. Don't fear the one who has the power to kill body. Fear the one who has the power to kill body and soul and judge in, in hell forevermore. It is a more fearful thing to be in the presence of a holy God and to recognize you're a sinner in the presence of a holy God. Now, if the, if, if the claim is that religion is the creation of a God to assuage our fears, who in their right mind would create a God to assuage their fears and make them more fearful than the fears that they were trying to assuage? Christianity cannot be made up for that reason. And since we're talking about phobias, we can say xenophobia is the fear of the unknown person, someone who is alien to you. The disciples should have known that Jesus was God, but this is, I think, where they truly encounter him as such. And when they do, they realize that God is holy and they are sinners and they are terrified. And they're terrified because they had him all wrong. They accused him of not caring 
And they realized that not only were they falsely accusing Jesus, but that they falsely accused God. And there they were face to face with him in the boat. They were sinners and they recognized it. In the, and they were sinners in the presence of a holy God, totally in a place where they were inescapable, deserving to be punished for their unbelief. So brothers and sisters, I would contend with you, no one, no one would ever make a crutch like this. No one could or would create a God who is completely foreign to themselves, who is completely holy. And I don't want to stress that. Not only wouldn't somebody do this, but I don't think it's possible. It, they couldn't. You could not imagine a holy God. You could not imagine a holy God coming to you and you could not imagine that as being a beneficial thing. Nobody, nobody as a sinner would ever have the ability to do that. And they certainly wouldn't. So Christianity does not give us a picture of a God who is a crutch. Christianity gives us a God who, who, who comes into our life and he points out the depths of our heart. He doesn't just tell us, you know, Christianity isn't about a God. I heard N.T. Wright say this. Christianity isn't a God that we make up that um, comes into the world to tell us who we want to know or to think of ourselves to be. He doesn't come into the world to affirm who we think we are or who we want to be. Christianity presents to us a God who comes into the world and tells us who he knows us to be. And he does something about it. Don't you love that? Jesus comes into the world to tell us who he sees us to be. And not to just leave us there, but to do something about it. Jesus comes into the world to tells us and tells us, you know what? You're actually worse than you think. And your predicament is far worse than you ever would give yourself credit for. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to snatch you up out of this pit, and I will serve you. I will go to the cross. Okay, so last, Jesus is a great Savior. He is a great Savior for two reasons, at least two reasons. I mean, that, that's an understatement. Two reasons that I'll talk about here real quick. Number one, he's a great Savior because he is in the storm with you. And number two, he's a great Savior because he's in the storm for you. Okay, number one, he's, in this, he's a great savior because he's in the storm with you. So let me ask you, what is the storm of, what's the storm in your life? Jesus is with you in it. And he stands in authority over every circumstance that is completely out of your control. He does. In fact, this is the wonder of the incarnation. If we really think about the incarnation, God becoming flesh, dwelling among us. When Jesus takes on flesh, he dwells among us. And he gets into the boat. You notice that Jesus doesn't say, you know what? The Sea of Galilee, that's a little dangerous. I don't, th I don't think it's wise to go across the sea. There could be a storm. He actually says, no, we're going. And if there's a storm, there's a storm. That's just part of, I suppose that's just part of life. They weren't so safety conscious, perhaps, as we were. But Jesus recognizes the threat to himself. He recognizes the threats that this world poses to him. And he gets right in that boat with us. He's there with you. So Jesus isn't some distant God. As you face the storms of your life, whatever it is that you're walking through, realize Jesus is in the boat with you. And really, 
as a sinner, that's a terrifying thing, but really as a redeemed person who is with Christ, who is in Christ, Christ in you, that is blessed news. That's what Phil was talking about earlier. Take heart, I have overcome the world. You have the overcomer of the world in your boat with you at all times. That is good news. And you might say, you might say this, and I've kind of already reiterated this, but I'll just remind us. You might say, I'm still waiting for Jesus to talk to the wind and the waves of my circumstance. But they are either not listening or Jesus isn't talking to them or some kind of communication breakdown. Well, Jesus is working on your faith. In that meantime, Christ is working 24-7, 365. He's working on your faith. Because your faith, brothers and sisters, is the most precious commodity to the kingdom of God. In terms of, in an earthly, like, in terms of what we have Your faith is the one piece that you would exercise before God. Your faith is extremely precious to God. He cares about it so much that he will put you in the storm to work on that, to grow it, to christen it, to to bring it out like gold refined by the fire. Your faith is very precious to God, and it should be very precious to you. And this should totally change the way you look at your trials. This should totally change the way you see the waves crashing into your boat. You should realize, gee, God cares about my faith so much. (laughs) He's willing to put me in this spot. And he is with me. And I don't understand any of it. I don't understand why it's going on so long. I don't get it. None of it makes sense. Have you ever been there? Where nothing about your situation makes sense. Why is it like this? He cares about your faith. And he's growing your faith. And that's why things haven't stopped. He's calling you to trust in him. Do you see him lying there on the cushion, fast asleep in the stern? The question is, do you believe that he has the authority over your storms? And if so, his peace, as he sleeps, can be your peace. His peace can be your peace. And it's because your storm became his storm. And that gets me into the second point. His peace, Jesus' peace, can be your peace because your storm became Jesus' storm. And I'm not just talking about the storms of life. I'm talking about the storm of all storms, and that is the storm of sin. The storm of your circumstances that are out there that you truly are totally out of control. It's totally out of your control, and, and in an eternal sense, it presents a, an eternal an eternally dire situation for you, something that you can do absolutely nothing about and something that will carry eternal significance for you. That is the, the storm of all storms that faces every single one of us and fa- it faces every single person on, the, on planet Earth. So Jesus' peace can be your peace because your storm became his storm. And have you ever noticed the parallels of this story to the story of Jonah? Just real quick, the boat, the storm, the calming of the storm. The fear of encountering God, they do that in the story of Jonah. But notice, they throw Jonah overboard, and that's kind of the atoning sacrifice. Everybody else gets to get off. The storm assuages. It's calmed. There's nobody being pitched overboard in this story. But is there? Is there? 
Now, Jesus didn't jump into the waters with them, but he did jump into something else, a different storm, and that was the cross. Jesus did jump into that storm for you. So Jesus is not just the, he's not just in the storm with you, he is in the storm for you. He goes into the storm as a sacrificial lamb, as a substitute in your place for a storm to calm a storm that you absolutely had no control over and it had eternal significance and eternal, it carried eternal consequences with it. So do you re- realize that the disciples, they deserve to die in that moment for their accusation? And they're met with mercy instead because Jesus went to the cross. He, he would go to the cross and he has gone to the cross. He faced a storm that you truly could never face. He's in the storm with you, but he faces the storm, the storm, that would surely overcome you, and he goes there in your place. And one of the key characteristics of GCF, and I'll close with this, is that our belief is that you need more than anything to encounter Jesus, the one who is God. I think the way I can illustrate this best is years ago I was at a conference, and Rick Warren and both uh, John Piper, both Rick Warren and John Piper were there. And I think... Well, let me just say this. Rick Warren had his method of kind of philosophy of ministry, and he's very practical. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. And he was big on you gotta have you gotta have application points, application points, application points, and people have to know exactly what they should do. And John Piper came on and said, Yeah, I don't disagree with that. But he said there's another way to look at it. He said this there is a way that you don't exactly have to emphasize the application points. And that the goal of a sermon, that the goal of our Bible teaching and preaching is what? To encounter Christ. To elevate his glory so high so that you see Christ. And when you see Jesus in his beauty and when you see him for who he is, you're changed. Transformation happens when you behold the glory of Jesus. You don't have to be told, oh, now you should actually be faithful with your money. You should stop cheating on your taxes. You shouldn't have to be told that. When you encounter Jesus, when when he steps into your life and you see him as the glorious Savior that he really is, nobody has to tell you you should stop cheating on your taxes. You You should start being nicer to your wife. You should not yell at your kids. Those are things that when you encounter Christ, boom, transformation starts to happen. And when we think about that, there's no application points here in this passage. Jesus doesn't tell them, hey, go off and do this and do that and so on and so forth. They've encountered Christ. Do you see that? They don't have to be told to go do this and that. They are wrestling with who is this? And I think that's something that should mark our preaching ministry. That's something that should mark our ministry as a whole, as a church, is what we believe in, is what distinguishes us as a people of God. We believe, yes, we do believe in application points. Absolutely, don't get me wrong here. But what we're really striving for is to encounter the living God. And when we believe that when that happens, when we encounter him for who he really is, boom, transformation happens. You cannot be the same anymore. So we wrestle constantly. This marks the life of our church. We wrestle constantly with this question. Who is this? Who is this God? And we never, ever want to get to the point in our life together where we just 
have them figured out. Here's Jesus in our nice little box with a nice little bow on, on top of it. We cannot do that. We always leave it open for Jesus to be in control and in authority over us. And we are always the, create, the, the creature. He's the creator. We're the creature who is always striving to understand him better. To realize, you know what? There's things about him that I don't fully understand yet. That I haven't fully surrendered to yet. So that's what our ministry is about, is exalting the beauty of Christ together, seeing him together, being transformed into his image together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. We pray, Lord God, that you would do with it to your pleasure. We pray, Lord God, that you would create life from your word. We pray that you would encourage us, Lord, in our faith. We pray that you would give us the right perspective of our trials. And we ask, Lord God, that by this power of the Spirit, we would trust you, that we would depend upon you, that we would truly delight to do your will. So go before us, we ask. We pray that you would use this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.